This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The topic I'll talk about today is evolution of birdsong learning and human spoken language, and some of the amazing things we can do and learn from birds about our own ability to speak. Spoken language actually consists of multiple components. Many of us don't realize this because we treat it as a unitary trait, but it's not. There are some components like auditory learning, syntax, uh, perception of speech. Actually, that is uh, common or the abilities amongst uh, the animal world, whereas there are a few components that are very rare, uh, like vocal production learning, the ability to imitate sounds. And so when you put all this together, I define spoken language as a specialized form of learned vocal communication with some components found in most vertebrates and a highly specialized vocal learning component uh, found in only a few species. Uh, And that highly specialized component, the most important one, uh, we call vocal production learning. It's found in five groups of mammals, that is us humans, dolphins, whales, bats, elephants, and seals, and three groups of birds, songbirds, hummingbirds, and parrots. And this is the ability to hear sounds uh, that are novel to you and through time learn how to imitate to produce them. There's another component like auditory learning that's found throughout uh, the animal kingdom for uh, species that have auditory pathways that go to the forebrain. The example I like to give is a common pet animal, a dog. Uh, You can teach a dog to learn how to understand the human word sit or siente say in Spanish, or even whole human sentences like roll over, get the ball, uh, come here with the newspaper. But a dog can't say, okay, you got it, I will sit. No, a dog goes woof. And it can learn how to produce a woof in different social contexts for food, for, uh, you know, petting, attention, and so forth, but not to actually imitate the sounds. And we call that usage vocal learning when to woof, but the actual sound woofing is innate. So it's been argued that these five groups of mammals here in this family tree on the left and the birds on the right have evolved the trait independently from a common ancestor. That is, you can see that the vocal learners are scattered amongst the tree, like the non, I mean, humans among non-human primates, the elephants, the whales, and so forth, and the hummingbirds, parrots, and songbirds. So it came about independently. Uh, but not all vocal learners have the same advanced ability. Us humans are the most advanced, but the most advanced non-human vocal learner are these parrots, and I'd like to show you this example. Never shake a baby bird. That would surely be absurd. Never shake a baby bird. That would surely be absurd. I am not a crook. My name is Tesco. So you can see here that Disco, raised with humans for four years, is producing hundreds of human words and recombining them into new sentences. Uh, most of the time, we don't understand what the meanings are, these, this combination of words that Disco is doing, uh, but other times we do. So it's not just pure copying and mimicry, but it's also imitation with some type of meaning to it. Uh, In contrast, our closest relatives, like Coco, a gorilla who was raised with humans for 39 years, uh, this is the best that Coco can do after all that time. How about when you're um, coughing? That was good. You did a sneeze and then a cough. 
Excellent. So what's going on here is Coco has good auditory learning, can understand several thousand human words perceptually,、uh, can even do a little bit of signing,、uh, but Coco can,、uh, can't produce, learn human speech sounds or even other sounds.、Uh, instead, Coco can blow air up through the voice track、uh, and voluntarily cough, but can't modulate that air that's going through the vocal track. And so this.、Okay. Has led myself and others to be asking the question: Why can't our closest relatives say something as simple as the word "apple," whereas、uh, relatives that are more than six million years distant from us, like three hundred million years for、uh, birds,、uh, can say all different kinds of varieties of apples, like "golden delicious," "Macintosh," and so forth? And there have been many hypotheses as to what makes this difference in the brains of these species that can imitate sounds.、Uh, and I list six here. Uh, that I reviewed recently,、uh, six common ones, and I'm going to tell you which ones I think are supported by the evidence and which ones are not.、Uh, green means、uh, it's the forebrain. Red is the brainstem regions,、uh, motor neurons that control the voice box, basically the larynx and the syrinx. And、uh, blue are the muscles. And one idea is like the syrinx. One idea is that、uh, the brains of vocal learners are bigger, so you have more brain space, more neurons to do a complex behavior. Uh, and I think there is evidence that this is the case. Like in humans, we do have bigger brains relative to our body size.、Uh, vocal learning birds have more、uh, neurons per centimeter squared or millimeter squared、uh, in in their brain that maybe can accommodate these new circuits.、Uh, but this hypothesis that there is a difference in the muscles、um, that control vocal behavior in the vocal learning species, like descended in humans relative to non-human primates. Uh, the evidence for this is not supported.、Uh, another hypothesis is that there is a presence or absence of a particular forebrain circuit that makes a connection down to these brainstem neurons for、uh, vocalizations, and there is evidence to support this idea. I'll tell you in a minute, and that not only the presence of this circuit, but is it making a direct or indirect projections to the motor neurons that control the vocalizations? Whenever you have direct connections or enhanced direct connections from the forebrain. Uh, you get more fine motor control of that behavior, and I think there is support for that.、Uh, there is another hypothesis that the auditory to Broca's connection is、uh, direct or enhanced in humans,、uh, but indirect in the non-vocal learning species, or not there at all,、uh, not allowing auditory information to enter the speech circuits.、Uh, I don't think there is good support for that hypothesis as this connection being specific to vocal learners. We find it in mice. Uh, and then, finally, coming from the linguistic community, there's this idea that there's a language module in the brain controlling all the other circuits for、uh, spoken language.、Uh, but I also don't think the evidence is very supportive of this either. When you actually look in the literature, so what is some of the evidence here? Here we found that when songbirds sing, like this canary. That act of singing is associated with rapid increase of immediate early genes. This white signal here, the messenger RNA,、uh, genes that are responsive to neural activity in the brain, and we find、uh, that it helps, like an MRI signal, identify the brain regions that are functioning for a particular behavior. In this case, learned singing,、uh, and we find for every song about the bird sings,、uh, the one-fold increase of the messenger RNA product of this particular gene, EGR1, in these song nuclei. And using this,、uh, we found that this is a motor-driven gene expression、um, 
uh, response in the brain. That is, you have to perform the behavior. It's not hearing it. It's not seeing another animal sing. It's actually singing. And using this, we ask the question, uh, what's similar or different across different bird species and with humans as well? And by the way, you learn here, here's a zebra finch brain, a songbird, to scale with a human. Uh, brain size doesn't really matter for this trait, neither does cortical folding. And what we see is that all the vocal learning bird species uh, shown here uh, compared to non-vocal learners like uh, chicken and quails, uh, all of them have this auditory, color, an auditory pathway colored in blue, uh, which means that you don't need that pathway to have vocal learning. Uh, you can have good auditory processing without it, like in the uh, vocal non-learners. But only the vocal learning species had these red and yellow regions that we know in songbirds are responsible for learning how to imitate the sounds for the red structures and learning how to produce those imitated sounds in the yellow structures that's taken over this innate brainstem circuit uh, for uh, innate vocalizations, took control over it to control learned vocalizations. And it's very similar in each of these vocal learning bird groups, as well as uh, when you compare it to the brain pathways in humans, you find similar circuitry there. Uh, in the non-vocal learning mammalian species, you have auditory regions, and I argue also Wernicke's area, allowing dogs to understand sit, siente say, come here, boy, and so forth. But only humans amongst these uh, mammalian species or primates have uh, these four brain regions involved in production of speech, as well as acquisition of speech, including Broca's area. Some argue that non-human primates have a rudimentary Broca's area. That might be possible, but it's not doing the things that human Broca's area can do. Uh, in terms of more advanced uh, speech abilities. How could it have this come about? Uh, we found that not only these brain regions become active when the bird sings, that is the vocal learning brain regions, but the neurons around them become quite active when they're doing um, learned movements. In this case, with hopping in the uh, wheel uh, that's rotating uh, for the first time in its life. And this is also a motor-driven gene expression response, but not for vocalizations, but for other body movements. And we find this pattern in all the vocal learners, where the saw nuclei are embedded in movement-controlled brain regions. And we find these movement-controlled brain regions in the non-vocal learning species, but without the saw nuclei inside of them. And when we look at the connectivity of the song circuit and the connectivity of the surrounding brain regions, they are similar, with some differences, like the uh, direct projection from the forebrain here to motor neurons that control the voice, where it's indirect for the neurons that control, let's say, wings or hopping and so forth. Uh, so if this were true, we would expect genes that function inside these circuits would be similar to the ones outside, or um, maybe with some differences in the genes that control neural connectivity for the differences in connectivity. In the human brain, uh, imaging studies have shown that areas that control learned movement, like this dancer learning how to do a choreographed sequence uh, series of movements, you have your highest activation in brain regions that are adjacent to Broca's area, to laryngeal motor cortex, and other speech areas. So putting all this together, I came up with what I call the motor theory of vocal learning origin, where I argue that all species that vocalize have this innate brainstem circuit controlling innate vocalizations like the dog barking or the chicken crowing. And they also have a forebrain motor learning pathway consisting of this anterior pathway for learning how to move 
and this descending motor pathway for controlling the production of those learned movements. And I argued that this motor learning pathway is replicated multiple times to connect to different body parts, uh, to control different muscle groups. And that in the vocal learning species, it replicated one more time and took over control of the vocal circuit from the brainstem to get this emerging vocal learning circuit that is similar to the surrounding motor areas. And we call this brain evolution by brain pathway duplication. Uh, And so we start to to test out these ideas. uh, And one of the experiments we've done is to ask, uh, do we find that the genes inside the vocal learning brain regions compared to the outside are similar or not? And we profiled using microarrays as well as RNA-seq data the gene expression of the vocal learning circuit of birds and human brain regions for speech. And we find that the brain regions for vocal communicate, learned vocal communication in songbirds do match uh, their gene expression profiles we find in human speech areas like dorsal laryngomotor cortex, both HVC and RA, and different cell types, layers two and three for HVC, layer five for RA, uh, and part of the basal ganglia here, area X, involved in speech acquisition and song acquisition in these birds. And for the convergent cell types, we see that they're the projection neurons that make those specialized direct projections that control vocalizations. And I don't have time to get into all the details here about um, how we came about all these results, but I'm just going to give you a working hypothesis. What we believe has happened is that during evolution, uh, vocal learning species have mutations in regulatory regions of certain genes, like transcription factors, like neural D6. And those mutations then cause uh, repressors or enhancers to bind to them and change the expression of these genes in the vocal learning circuits. Uh, those transcription factors then change the expression of downstream genes like SLT1, an axon guidance molecule. Uh, in this case, inhibiting the expression in the vocal learning circuit. And by doing so, you don't want to inhibit the expression in the surrounding motor pathways that don't control vocal behavior. So what do you do? You coat them with histones to prevent these new repressors from binding. And uh, we'd like to test out that hypothesis, say, to, uh, let's say, to upregulate some of these genes that are downregulated in a vocal learning species, break a direct projection, see if we can prevent them from imitating, downregulate some of these genes, Uh, in a circuit that already has a vocal uh, or motor learning pathway and see if we can get a chicken to get a new novel connection that might allow it to control its vocalizations better. We would love to do this work in non-human primates, but it's difficult. Uh, Rather, we're we're trying in mice now. And so, but not much was known about the mouse brain or vocal behavior when we started these experiments. It turns out mice have these ultrasonic songs that sound like this. And male mice produce these ultrasonic songs to females as a courtship display. And we find that they show singing-driven or motor-driven gene expression also in cortical regions like we see in the birds. That was a surprise. If we use transsynaptic neural tracers uh, going from laryngeal muscles, we find that that same area of the cortex has layer 5 neurons shown here at higher power uh, that uh, send projections down to the brainstem motor neurons. So if we place tracers in this region of the brain, we find that there are these black-labeled axons here synapsing onto the motor neurons that control the voice. The difference here, we didn't expect to find this in mice. It was thought to be only in vocal learners, but there is a difference. Mice 
have very sparse projection, one to three motor neurons, uh, one to three connections per motor neuron, whereas in songbirds here and in humans, uh, looking at neurodegeneration studies, we can find hundreds of axons from the forebrain innovating the motor neurons that control the voice. So uh, what we think is going on here is that in all species that don't, vocal, uh, don't produce learned vocalizations, you have high levels of these axon guidance genes uh, that when they send their synapses from layer five neurons down to the brainstem uh, and, and bind to the receptor, it repels those connections from forming. So you don't get a direct projection. In contrast, the vocal learners have down-regulated expression of these axon-guided repulsive molecules, such that when those layer five neurons send connections down to the brainstem, they're allowed to have direct cortical control uh, for vocal behavior. And one of those molecules we think is plexin A1, where um, it's expressed at high levels in layer five of mouse species, but it's down-regulated in human layer five. And what we did is created mice that have a Cree line that it overexpresses a promoter in layer five, where we can then knock out the plexin A1 gene specifically in layer five of mice and ask what happens. And when we do that, looking at nucleus ambiguous uh, in the brainstem, I'm going to blow it up here to higher power, in wild type animals have very few axons going through it. In the knockdown of plexin, now we enhance the projection from the cortex to the brainstem here, uh, and we got enhanced projection like we see in songbirds and humans, although not as advanced as we see there. In heterozygous knockouts, we see an increase in innovation, and the homozygous knockouts, we see a bigger increase. Uh, and these mice, the, uh, their bandwidth of their vocalizations in the heterozygous and the knockout animals matured much faster than the wild-type mice. And we're now trying to get them to see if they can modify their vocalizations in an operant training paradigm. Uh, there's another gene that regulates slit one called FOXP2. Many of you heard about this. And when FOXP2 is mutated in humans, it causes the following deficit. Your name? Laura. You're trying to say Laura? Where do you live, Laura? She's trying to say Sheffield. I'm going to stop this now for the sake of time. Uh, Laura's a four-year-old child with a mutation in this transcription factor has this difficulty learning how to produce speech, but has good auditory perception and comprehension. We put Laura's mutation into mice, and we found that uh, wild-type mice, they sing these uh, more complex syllables when they're in the presence of females, and when they're smelling female urine, they sing these uh, simple ones. A mice with Laura's mutation could not switch to these more complex syllables here. Uh, they uh, instead produce those simple ones. And these layer five neurons that project down to the brainstem motor neurons for vocalizations, they are there, but they are spread out more in the cortex here uh, compared to wild type. So FOXP2, which regulates slit one, is necessary for more complex vocalizations in mice and the positioning of these neurons. So to end off here, um, we're going with the hypothesis that vocal learning is not binary. Maybe it's a continuous trait where you have limited vocal learners like lizards or limited vocalizers that don't vocalize at all like lizards, mice and chicken that make small modifications to their vocalizations, to bad songbirds that make more complex ones, to finally parrots and humans that are the more advanced complex vocal learners. And the more you co complex you go, the fewer species you find. Uh, but this also predicts 
If you can get two groups of species of mammals and birds evolving similar brain circuits that make these direct projections to the brainstem for novel vocalizations, who's to say maybe another half million or a million years from now, a lizard or a crocodile turtle, another mammal might evolve vocal learning. I can predict what the circuit's going to look like and the genes that are regulated there. Uh, and maybe one day we'll really understand this difference. Why can our closest relatives do this, but uh, our distant ones can? So ending off here, uh, complex behaviors can evolve multiple times uh, from deeply homologous but diverse brain circuits, cell types, and genes. And a trait like spoken language can be understood from studies in disinrelated animals. Convergent evolution of mechanisms for a trait is associated with similarities in disorders of that trait. And I want to thank you for your attention and thank you for those that funded us. Uh, shown here, the ones that are starred are the ones that funded the particular studies that I presented today. And I want to thank the organizers once again for inviting me and I really appreciate your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.